The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the first chapter and verses 54 and 55. Verses 54 and 55 in the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abram, and to his seed forever. We had better perhaps uh, just uh, correct that uh, reading which I have taken here from the authorized version that is in front of me. The first phrase in verse 55, as he spake to our fathers, should really be in brackets. So we read like this. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and to his seed forever, as he spake to our fathers. The correction is important for this reason only, that the authorized translation gives the impression that the reference to Abraham and to his seed is a continuation of the speaking to the fathers. That is, in a sense, perfectly true, as we shall see. But the main idea here is that he hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and to his seed forever, as he spake to our fathers. We come back, in other words, to a further consideration of this section of Scripture, which is generally described as the Magnificat, this extraordinary statement made or sung by uh, the Virgin Mary after she had been saluted by Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. It is, as we were indicating last Sunday, both morning and evening, uh, a most astonishing utterance, particularly when you look at it from the standpoint of seeing in it a summary of the salient and the basic features of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the Christian faith. Now, last Sunday morning, we were looking at it in this way, and from this standpoint, the way in which Mary seems to see that uh, the thing that overshadows everything else is uh, the manifestation of the character of God in the coming of his Son into this world. My soul doth magnify the Lord, And she says, my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. And we saw how she goes on to indicate how some of the attributes of God's person and character have been laid manifest and bare before us in the great event and fact of the Incarnation. So with the whole of our being, her soul and spirit, She praises God and magnifies his great and holy name. Then, last Sunday evening, I say this for the benefit of those who are not present. There we saw in a striking manner how Mary here has seen immediately the great characteristic of the gospel, how it is a reversal of everything that men would ever have thought of. How in the gospel things happen which not only men would not have thought of, but which are, as I say, the exact opposite of what men would ever have imagined God to do. This is what he has done. 
He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered, who? The proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. That is the great characteristic of the gospel. Thank God for it. Not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to save. They that are whole, he says, have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, the wealthy in this respect, but sinners to repentance. Oh, thank God that the gospel, in a sense, starts with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Well, Mary has anticipated all that, you see. There's a synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount, in a sense, especially the Beatitudes, in this Magnificat. Well, we've been looking at those aspects of her great statement. And it is indeed, as you see, uh, thus full, pregnant, with a, a statement of the great central features of this gospel of redemption. But we come back to this further consideration this morning, and especially in these two verses, because here we are reminded of an element in connection with what happened when the Son of God came into this world, which is in many ways, I think, one of the most comforting aspects of our faith and of the whole of the biblical teaching. And that aspect is, of course, simply this. The Incarnation is the supreme example of fulfilled prophecy. Or if you prefer it in a more experimental phrase, it is the supreme example of God's faithfulness to his promises. Now I say that this surely is the most comforting aspect of our faith. And especially as we look at it and consider it in the setting in the world in which we find ourselves at this present hour. We all agree that these are no easy days for Christians. They're exceptionally difficult days for Christians and for the whole of the Christian church. Contrast it with what one reads about a hundred years ago when it was the custom for people to go to places of worship and when everybody thought in these terms what a change has taken place. Well, it's a time of discouragement, and many Christian people are discouraged. Therefore, what can we do better this morning, the last Sunday morning of an old year, than to look at the situation in which we find ourselves in the light of this message of the Incarnation, the message of Christmas, if you like, and see what over and above the great fact itself it has to say to us in this more general manner. And here, as I see it, there are some three principles which stand out with exceptional clarity. And the first is this. The coming of Christ into this world is the fulfillment of all God's promises. That is what Mary is really saying. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abram and to his seed forever. Now then, the great... Uh, covenant promise concerning redemption 
was, after all, made in its most explicit manner to Abraham. It, it, it is, uh, prior, you can find it prior to that, there is something antecedent to that. But the definition of it, as it were, the, the explicit statement of it, is that which is made to Abraham. When he is told that in him and in, and in his seed shall all the world be blessed. Now, Mary at once, you see, sees the significance of this which is happening, this son that who is to be born out of her womb. She remembers what the archangel Gabriel said about him. She didn't understand it at that moment, but now she does. And um, she begins to realize the meaning of he shall be great and she'll be called the son of the highest. She begins to understand what Elizabeth means when she says, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, now then, Mary, I say, sees all this. Here she says now, God is going to fulfill all these promises that he has made. This mercy toward Abraham and his seed forever. Well, how is it happening? Well, it happens, she says, like this. He hath holpen his servant Israel. And that word means to succor, to help. Or perhaps better still, to lift up. They'd been cast down. They need to be lifted up. They need to be saved. They'd been thrown down by an enemy. Someone comes, rescues them, takes hold of them, suckers them, lifts them up, puts them to stand upon their feet. That is what is happening, she says. When I give birth to this son, I'm giving birth to the Savior. The one prophesied, predicted, promised, he's coming. All that was promised to Abram, all this great mercy, here it is, literally uh, coming into being and into action. What is she referring to? Well, of course, she's referring primarily to salvation itself. And this is where her statement is so significant. God had made this promise to Abram concerning salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation unto himself. And what we so often tend to forget is this, that what God said to Abram was that this salvation was going to come, was to be brought through this descendant of his that was yet to be born into this world. Now, Abram didn't understand it fully, but he understood enough to rest his faith upon it. Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, we are told. In the Old Testament, Paul takes it up and works it out as a great argument, as you remember, in the fourth chapter of his epistle to the Romans, and likewise in the third chapter of the epistle to the Galatians. You remember also how our Lord himself said on one occasion, Abraham, he said, rejoice to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now that is a reference to salvation. That is a statement which means this, that Abraham was given to see in a flash, not very clearly, but he saw it, that God's great salvation, the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, was to be brought about ultimately by someone who should come into the world who would be of the seed of Abraham. 
Now, that's a very basic thought. Mary is making that statement here. She sees it. That's what's happening. In other words, we've got here, in a way, a summary of the whole of the Old Testament. And uh, nothing is more important than for us to realize that, that the whole of the Old Testament is looking forward to this event. Now, the children of Israel were blessed. They were greatly blessed. They were God's own people. They were unlike all the other peoples and nations of the world, and God showered his blessings upon them. But let us never make the mistake of imagining that they had had everything. Oh, no. All they ultimately had was the promise. It was enough. Thank God it was enough. But they had nothing more than the promise. You will find that this is uh, frequently uh, elaborated in the New Testament, as I say. There is that tremendous statement of it there in the third chapter of the epistle to the Galatians. But, of course, you've got it again in a very striking manner in the epistle to the Hebrews at the end of that great 11th chapter. All these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us that they, without us, should not be made perfect. They didn't receive the promise. What they received was the promise of the promise, the certainty that the promise was going to be fulfilled. Now, here is the key, of course, to the understanding of the whole of the Old Testament. Look at them as they went to their tabernacle and to their temple, taking their burnt offerings and meal offerings and sacrifices, animals being killed, blood being shed, offered, painted before the altar and so on. What is it all? What was happening there? Well, the answer is this. That was uh, but uh, a covering, as it were, of their sins for the time being. As we saw the argument developed in the 10th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer cannot cleanse the conscience from dead works and from sin. No, no. Uh, it, it, they were simply covered over. They were but types pointing to the coming of the great anti-type. They didn't really deal with sin. No, but they were indications that God had got a way of dealing with sin. And that, says Mary, is what is now happening. Here are the mercies promised. God had given this promise that to Abram and to his seed there would be mercy and compassion, their sins should be forgiven and blotted out as a thick cloud, that they would be made the children of God and heirs of glory. And all that they knew by way of offerings and sacrifices was not the fulfillment of that. It was merely another way of giving the promise and of indicating in a measure the way in which it was going to be fulfilled. Very well, but here, says Mary now, is the great antitype himself. Here now, God is going to fulfill all this mercy that he had promised to Abraham and to his seed forever, which, of course, means this. I can only summarize it in a phrase this morning that there is only one way of salvation and that all salvation and every aspect of it comes in this one way.
in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and him crucified, made an offering for sin, a body that hast thou prepared me. What for? In order that he might be the Lamb of God, that he might be slain, he might be offered, one sacrifice forever, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now that's what he's saying. Here is the fulfillment of all the mercies. There is no forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no true knowledge of God apart from him. There is no blessing apart from him. As the Apostle Paul puts it in the second epistle to the Corinthians in the first chapter, all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen to the glory of God the Father. Here Thulpen, his servant Israel. Here is Israel, seed of Abram. Yes, but under the law, and condemned by the law, under the condemnation of the law, not able to be free, held in bondage and in captivity. Thank God, living on the promise, but nothing more. Here is the great fulfillment. And so you will find, as I say, that the whole of the Old Testament, prophets, psalmists, seers, they all have seen this, they're looking forward. They know that that is the thing that is going to fulfill all the promises and bring the mercy into the individual experience. It is all, I say, in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he did when he was in this world and what he is now continuing and applying in the glory. That's the first thing. But there is another aspect to this general statement. For there was also this other promise made to Abraham, that in him and his seed, all the world should be blessed. Not in the sense I've just been describing, but in addition to that. And what is that? Well, it is this. And this is, of course, the point at which the Jews, the children of Israel of old, stumbled so sadly. They didn't realize that God was promising to Abraham not only that they, the literal physical seed, should be blessed, but that all the nations of the earth should be blessed through this person, not to the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. You see, there's the key to the understanding of the epistle to the Romans, isn't it? The Jews thought that this was only for them. They stumbled at our Lord when he said that he was not come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and gave indications of something further. They stumbled at it always. But here is the promise made to Abram. And Mary is given the insight to see it. And she glories in this fact. Here is one who is the savior of the world. And of course he knew it himself. That's the explanation of the incident in John 12, isn't it? When the Greeks approached Andrew and said we would see Jesus. And our Lord wouldn't say see them at the time, but he said, when the Son of Man, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He means all nations. That his salvation is not confined to the Jews, but it is also to the Gentiles. Peter stumbled at it. He was given the vision you remember in connection with the visit of Cornelius. He stumbled. But here is the message. What 
God hath cleansed that called not thou common. The door is open to the Gentiles. You and I would never have been Christians but for this. It isn't confined to the Jews. Abraham and his seed. Well, who are Abraham's seed? Oh, not merely those who are of the circumcision, but of the uncircumcision also. All who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham is the father of all the faithful. Abraham is the father of all who exercise faith in God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God. If we are Christians, we are of the seed of Abraham. That is the argument of Galatians 3. Well, now, Mary, I say, puts it all here, as it were, in a nutshell. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy unto Abram and to his seed forever. And it is all entirely and exclusively in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I must hurry on, I must leave it, but my dear friends, are we all quite happy and perfectly clear about this? You don't know God apart from Jesus Christ. You are not reconciled to God apart from him. It is in him that he is hoping. His servant Israel, it is here he fulfills all the gracious promises made to Abram and to his seed forever. There is only one way to God. It is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one way to enter with boldness into the holiest of all. What is it? It is, as we've been reminded in Hebrews 10:19, by the blood of Jesus. Mary is expressing all that. However, let me hurry on to my second point, which is this one. The coming of Christ shows us the method or the manner of God's blessing. I'm particularly interested in this this morning. The coming of Christ, I have said, is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Yes, but let us observe the way in which he does it. The coming of Christ sheds this great illumination upon God's method, God's manner of fulfilling his own promises and bringing his mercies into being. Now, here is the key, of course. It's in the the expression, in remembrance, He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abram and to his seed forever as he spake to our fathers. Here again is a summary of the whole of the Old Testament. But now let's take this phrase in remembrance. Here is the comfort and the consolation of the scripture. What's happening, Mary seems to say to herself, ah, She says, what's happening is this. God, after all, has remembered his promise. In remembrance of his promise, of his mercies, of all he'd said to Abram and to the fathers through the running centuries. What she is saying, in effect, therefore, is this, you see. God seems to forget, doesn't he? He seems to forget what he's promised. Yes, his promise, his promised mercy to Abraham. When did he give that promise? And here, you see, is the startling answer. He had given that promise to Abraham 2,000 long years before Mary was singing these words. 2,000 years. That's God's method. 
There he calls Abram one night. He says, come out of your tent. Stand here. Look at the stars in the heavens. Can you count them? Imagine that you're looking at the sand on the seashore. Can you count the individual granules? So shall thy seed be. In thee and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then 2,000 years elapsed. And the Messiah doesn't seem to come. Has God forgotten his promise? Is there any value in his promises? Well, here you see is the lesson. Here is the comfort and the consolation. There is nothing which is quite so foolish as to judge God in terms of our time measurements and our calendars. And there are so many discouraged Christian people in churches today. Ah, oh, they say, perhaps the higher critics are right after all. They say, you know, that there's no such thing as prophecy, that you can't foretell, and that all that we've talked about, the promises of God, is all nonsense. This is nothing but a bit of ethics and morality which we've got to put into practice. People are beginning to get discouraged. Oh, is it true after all? Uh, where are these promises of God? You who believe in them still, well, why aren't they being fulfilled? Why does God allow this and that? Isn't that the foolish talk and argument? Well, nobody who's ever heard these words this morning should ever say that again. In remembrance. What's happening, says Mary, she answers herself and says, what is happening now is that God is fulfilling what he promised 2,000 years ago. Shame on us Christian people for thinking so much as worldlings and using the foolish methods of philosophy when we are dealing with the everlasting and eternal God in remembrance. With God a thousand years are but as one day and one day as a thousand years. You'll find the psalmist crying out in his moment of almost despair and saying, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Of course he hasn't. It's he who doesn't know his scriptures. He doesn't know his God. In remembrance, after 2,000 years. Yes, but let me add to that. Not only had God made this promise 2,000 years before, and all the years and centuries had passed and he hadn't come, there was something even more depressing than that. At this time when Mary uttered these words, there had been no prophetic word to Israel for 400 years. The last of the prophets was Malachi. And 400 years had gone since Malachi had exercised his ministry and had prophesied. Can you imagine that? We who get so impatient if God doesn't answer us at once, we offer a prayer and if he doesn't answer the next moment, we say, ah, oh, is God love after all? 400 years and his chosen people hadn't had a single word. What is happening? Oh, says Mary, what is happening is this. God is still there and God still remembers in remembrance of his promise. God, I say, seems to forget now, there's our first principle. We've all known something about this in personal experience, haven't we? Well, let us learn this lesson. God never forgets. He cannot forget. He sees the end from the beginning. He is in the eternal now. 
He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is not in the flux of time. He is outside it. He doesn't see things as we do. He seems to forget, but he doesn't. So the next time you're tempted to think that he does, you simply look at the fact of the incarnation, and it's the eternal answer to your fears. But let me hurry to a second point which seems to me to emerge here. It is this. He not only seems to forget, but he allows apparent defeats to take place, even to his own people. He called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he made his great statement and promise to him, creates a nation out of him, blesses this nation. Yes, but look on a few years and you'll find that that nation is in the captivity and the bondage of Egypt. Look at the taskmasters and their whips. See the people bleeding and groaning under the dictatorship of Pharaoh. God allowed all that. They seem to be utterly forsaken, defeated, and quite forlorn and without any hope at all. Look at it again in the case of the captivity of Babylon. Same thing. City destroyed. The city of God reduced to a mass of rubble, ruins, all the gorgeous buildings raised to the ground. The people carried out, taken away as slaves in utter helplessness in the captivity of Babylon. God allowed all that. The God who promised so much allowed all that. He allowed many a great conqueror to come up, the Assyrians and others, and Israel was discomfited and defeated. And at the very time, of course, that Mary was uttering these words, the Jews and their land had been conquered and had been possessed by the great Roman Empire. And there they were again as vassals once more, in the captivity, as it were, of Rome, Helpless and hopeless, what could they do? God had allowed all this. That's a part of his method. It comes out so clearly, doesn't it? He allows apparent defeats. But there is another principle, and thank God for this, and here it is. He gives, in spite of all this, periodic encouragements. The initial promise to Abraham, then apparent forgetfulness. Then forgetfulness apparently to the point at which he's even forsaken his people and is no longer interested or else hasn't the power to help them and to deliver them. Ah, yes, but to save us from a final despair and utter hopelessness, he gives periodic encouragements. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and to his seed forever. In brackets, as he spake to our fathers... You go through your Old Testament and you'll find that God in different ways repeats the promise made to Abram. He repeated it to Isaac. He repeated it to Jacob. He repeated it to Judah. He repeated it to David. He's got it here in some of the Psalms. It's here in some of the prophets. Just at any given moment, God may send the message. The people are almost giving up and giving in and God sends the word reminding them of the promise. He says, I am still the God of Abram, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The covenant God, the covenant-keeping God, the promise is still in force. It still avails as he promised to our fathers, as he spake to our fathers. And you know, if I didn't believe this, I'd confess from this pulpit to be altogether without hope this morning. If I, like some people, believed 
that the success and the future of the Christian church was dependent upon human ability and power and organization. If I believed that organized campaigns and so on were really going to solve the problem, I confess that I would be entirely without hope this morning. Things are very bad, you say. What's the use of going on praying for revival? The answer is the whole of the Old Testament. This is the God in whom I believe. The God who makes a promise and then seems to forget it, allows his people to be thrown down, to be defeated, almost destroyed. There they are languishing in hopelessness. Thank God he gives us bits of encouragement. He reminds us that he's still there. We are praying for showers. Thank God for an occasional droplet. Thank God for an occasional warming of the heart. Oh, it's nothing I know. Yes, but don't despise the day of small things. The God who does the small thing is just giving you a sample of the big thing he can do. As he spake to our fathers, and he still does it. We are passing through a period of difficulty. We are in a wilderness. We are in a drought. Thank God for every little encouragement he gives. He reminds us that he's the God of our fathers still. The promise is sure. That's his method. And then my last comment under this heading is this, that he obviously has his own chosen time. Who would have anticipated that he would have sent his son into the world at the particular moment he did? But it was then God did it. Why, well, it was the fullness of the times. Don't try to understand God's ways. Get hold of these principles, but if you think you'll be able to work out a plan and a scheme and say that in such and such a month, such and such a thing's to happen, you'll be wrong every time. You can't do it. God has got his own time. He's got his own method. He's got his own appointed due moment. And when it comes, he does what he said he'd do. He didn't give a time to Abram. All he told him was that he would send this Messiah out of his loins, and he did it, and he did it in his own moment. You know, that's to me the marvelous thing about revival, which we've been speaking and talking about so much this year. You can never prophesy them. You can never predict. There's always an element of surprise. Just when you think all is hopeless and you're giving up, God comes. And he doesn't come when you think he's going to. I've said it before from this pulpit. I say it again. You know, that's what makes preaching such a romantic thing. This is the most romantic place in the world that I know of at any rate. I never know what's going to happen when I enter into this pulpit. I sometimes think something wonderful is going to happen and it doesn't happen. I sometimes come with comparative dryness and God gives me this blessing, this shower in my soul. He's got his own time. Well, let's learn the principles. Let's go on. Let's be content knowing that God has his plan, his covenant, his purpose, and he'll surely bring it to pass. But let me say just a word on my last principle, which is this. The coming of Christ is the guarantee of the fulfillment of all God's promises to all the seed. We are now looking to the future. This event guarantees not only all that we've been looking at, but the whole of the future. For God's promises are not exhausted yet. There is much more to come. What Mary saw was this, you see, that the birth of this son of hers was an absolute proof of God's faithfulness to his promises. That not one of them can ever fall or fail. 
Not any one of them can ever fail to be fulfilled. For his mercies aye endure, ever faithful, ever sure. Here's the way to look at the future then. What God did when he sent his son into the world is an absolute guarantee that he will do everything that he's ever promised to do. Look at it in a personal sense. All things work together for good to them that love God. That's a promise. To them who are the called according to his purpose. But how can I know that that's true for me, says someone? The answer is the incarnation. God has given the final proof there that all his promises are sure, that he is faithful to everything he's ever said. So that promise is sure for you. Whatsoever your state or condition may be, whatever may come to meet you, he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And he won't, he said so. And we've got an absolute proof that he fulfills his promises. Doesn't always do it immediately in the way that we think. No, no, but he does it. And he'll never fail to do it. Well, obviously, we've got a theme here that will keep us for the rest of the day and the rest of the week. Work it out for yourselves. Look at it in terms of your sanctification. Are you struggling against sin? Are you sometimes feeling hopeless? Here's the answer to you. He which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is bringing many sons into glory. And you know, my friend, if you're a child of God, if he set his heart upon you, if you're in his plan, if you're one of his chosen, he will deal with you until you shall be finally faultless and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He will perfect you. If you are fool enough to defy him, he'll chastise you. He'll whip you with scorpions. He'll chisel you until he gets you where he's purposed to bring you. Don't fight against him, therefore. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he's doing it for our holiness, for our sanctification. His promise is sure. It'll never fail. There's no such thing as falling away from grace. If a man has been given new life, it'll go on to final perfection. He hath sanctified forever. Them that come unto God by him, them whom he hath chosen. Of course, this is God and he doesn't change. His purposes cannot be frustrated. Your sanctification is guaranteed by the incarnation and ultimately our glorification. Isn't it difficult to realize this? But you know the promise to Abram and his seed is this. Not merely that our sins are to be forgiven and that we are to be reconciled to God, no, but that we are to be saved entirely, completely. Body, soul, and spirit, perfect. Without any blemish, I say, of any kind. And, of course, it's how difficult it is for us to realize this. Your body is weak and frail, so is mine. Aches and pains, the old tent is beginning to dissolve. But my dear friend, if you are a child of God, your body is going to be glorified. We look for the Savior who shall change this our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. According to that power whereby he is able even to subdue all things 
unto himself. What a glorious promise. It's all there underwritten, says Mary, in this event, in this incarnation. His promises, he's remembered them. He's going to fulfill them all. Because he is who and what he is. Look at it then in general. Because, you know, you and I are just in a state of transition now. So is the whole church. What is this age in which we are living? Well, it is the age of the gathering out of God's people from all nations under the sun. Sometimes they come one by one, sometimes in crowds, in revivals, they may come by the thousands. Yes, it's been going on for these 2,000 years nearly. What is it? Oh, God gathering out the church, God perfecting the church. And he's going on with it until all the fullness of the Jews and the Gentiles shall have come in. And the church will be perfect. What then? Well, then the promise is that Christ will come again. What for? Well, to receive these his people and to destroy all his foes. Are you worried about the church? Are you worried about all these rationalists and clever people? Are you beginning to fear that they're going to undermine the Christian faith? And that everything's going to be lost? My dear friend, if you do, you haven't understood the meaning of the Incarnation. Think of the 2,000 years that elapsed since the promise to Abram. Look at the defeats to which the children of Israel were subjected. Look at the utter hopelessness. It's still the same God. The church is in eclipse at the moment, but what's it matter? It's God's. And the church is going to be brought to the place which God has purposed for her. Christ will come again. And he'll come probably as he did the first time. When we'll all feel utterly hopeless and filled with despair. And say the church is finished and nothing can be done. He'll come and he'll scatter his enemies. The proud he will put down and the mighty he will hurl down from their seats. And fill the hungry with good, sing, good things, and the rich he will send empty away. He will come to judge the world in righteousness. And evil and sin and hell and Satan and everything shall be cast into the lake of fire and of burning for all eternity. And he will usher in his glorious kingdom, his eternal kingdom of glory and of might and of power. He will be over all. And he will then finally hand the kingdom back to the Father. And you and I, Christian people, will be in that kingdom and in that glory. We shall judge the world. We shall judge angels. We shall share in the glory and the triumph of the Son of God. God's promised this. It's a part of the promise to Abram. And God's method patently is still the same as it was through the days of the Old Testament dispensation. He appears to forget. And the world ridicules. They say, where is the promise of his coming? And the answer which we still give is this, that God is God. That he is not like men. That with him a thousand days are as one year and one year and one day as a thousand years. He has his time. He has his method. In his wisdom, he allows many things to happen to his people for their own perfection, for teaching them for their discipline, and for his own final glory. And as he sent his son out of the womb of Mary when the fullness of the times had come, he will send him again out of heaven, riding the clouds accompanied by the holy angels. 
Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more in remembrance of his mercy to Abram and to his seed forever as he spake to our fathers. Thank God. The incarnation is the final proof of the faithfulness of God. The guarantee that his every promise will be fully fulfilled. Amen.